Christianity and anarchism are not two words you would think go together, but surprisingly, that's what some people believe the Bible teaches. Anarchism believes that all institutions of authority are to blame for all human suffering and injustice, and therefore, they need to be abolished, creating a free, stateless society. This is what, for instance, the notable 19th century Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy taught. Tolstoy was heavily influenced by Christ's Sermon on the Mount, and he believed the words of Jesus gave support to his views. And absolutely foundational to his teaching was what Jesus said in Matthew 5.39, do not resist an evil person. And Tolstoy took that as a universal absolute with no exceptions. So any institution that resisted evil should be abolished. That included the government, the military, law courts. In our day and age, some Liberals and some people have coined the phrase defund the police and they want to abolish the Supreme Court, but that's child's play compared to the teachings of the Christian anarchists. They want to abolish every single authority structure. And speaking of the courts, what Jesus said later in the Sermon on the Mount only gave them further fuel to their views because down in chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. And with this, Tolstoy taught, quote, that Christ totally forbids the human institution of any law court. No court of law, end quote. That's because the courts resist evil. They return evil for evil. They got to go. And Tolstoy said, Jesus, quote, could mean nothing else by these words, end quote. And so I guess it's settled then, right? Now, I probably don't have to convince you of the extreme folly of Christian anarchism. It's where the, the cure is worse than the disease, Governments and institutions of authority, they, they may be imperfect and they sometimes can be wicked and corrupt, but they still put a check on man's depravity, which would be far worse without them. You just ask those people who lived before the flood how anarchy worked out. But more importantly, we want to know, is this what Jesus taught? That's our concern. And Jesus did say, do not judge. Could he mean nothing else by those words? Today, this verse has become a favorite among cultural Christians. Why? Well, it just, it grants them a pass to do whatever they want, to believe whatever they want with impunity. And you can't judge them. Jesus said so. Instead, despite what you believe or, or how you live in the name of love and unity, we just need to accept one another, no matter what. Blank check, acceptance. Churches make this their main message. They're not like those judgy, preachy churches. They accept all people. But is this right? Is the Lord forbidding us from all judgment, even discerning between right and wrong, truth and error? I mean, we are Christ's disciples. We, we very much care about what he said. We seek to order our lives around what he said. So what did he say? According to our Lord, how are we to live? Something we need to find out and figure out. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew 7, as this text is our passage for this morning. Matthew 7. We're back today in Christ's Sermon on the Mount. We're rounding another corner as we enter chapter 7. Now we're in the home stretch as we're nearing the end. I've got a little left to go. Thankfully, though, Jesus does not just feed us table scraps here at the end. He saves actually some of his richest teaching for this final chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. This is where we see the golden rule, the tree and its fruits, the house built on sand and more. Much of what he says in this final chapter has to do with our relationships. How do we relate to one another inside and outside the Christian community? We're going to find out. This all begins with chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, which instructs us on how to relate to one another inside the church as brothers and sisters, fellow siblings in the household of God, specifically though when there's sin in the camp. This passage deals with the subject of passing judgment. And that's something every church in every age needs to discern, understand, figure out, get right. I mean, can a ship sail smoothly when its crew are constantly drawing their swords and fighting one another? Obviously not. We we don't want that to be us. So we need to learn what Jesus says about judging brothers. So let's read it first. Matthew 7 verses 1 through 5. It's where Jesus says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. 
And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye. And behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, as always, we want to walk through this passage verse by verse, explaining it, applying it to our lives as we always seek to do. But here first, I think it's necessary to settle this overarching question. Does Jesus intend this uh, as a universal absolute? Do not judge. Is he forbidding all types of judgment whatsoever? This is the same question, the same type of question we've been asking throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount. Because in this whole message, Jesus gives these stark, far-reaching statements. We wonder, like, what, what does he mean by that? And we've gone through most of them. And time and time again, though, we have found that, no, he, he is not making universal absolutes. All of his teaching in the sermon comes in a context. And if you, if you get that context wrong, you will be led astray. And so what context are we talking about? Well, let, let's just deal with the immediate context of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is a message Jesus is giving to his followers, but it comes on the back of a contrast. The way he shows them comes in distinction to another way. It's always in distinction. Which way? It's the way of the scribes and Pharisees. The, the thread that runs throughout this entire sermon is the repudiation of the false self-righteousness of the religious leaders of Israel. Their teaching was so wrong, they were leading people away from God, but they used their power to control the people, and they, they never objected. They didn't know better. No one questioned them until Jesus. He doesn't just question them, though. He completely dismantles their system. He has to tear that down and show the way of truth in comparison, in contrast. He does that throughout his entire ministry, but the Sermon on the Mount, it's like a wrecking ball to the false religion the Jews had built in that day. Don't forget, back in chapter 5, remember that the foundational verse that opens the body of this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 20, where he says to them, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That was already mind-blowing to them. Is that even possible? They're the most righteous guys around. Except that they didn't have any true righteousness, only self-righteousness. Right after that, from there, Jesus proceeds to give six contrasts with the twisted teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Rest of chapter 5, he goes to six places where they had so misinterpreted the Old Testament law. And they did so to justify themselves, even redefine their sinful behavior as righteousness. After that, chapter 6, Jesus goes on to make three more contrasts, this time with the twisted practices of the scribes and Pharisees. They managed to mangle the three main pillars of Jewish devotion, giving, praying, and fasting. And they likewise turned them into vehicles of self-exaltation. I mean, they, they weren't worshipers of God, but of self. And they had it all wrong, and Jesus says so in this sermon. Here we are now in chapter 7, and this contrast of, of the true way with the, the way of the scribes and Pharisees uh, is still going on. This opening text in chapter 7, it resumes the warning against hypocrisy that he uh, last touched on at the beginning of chapter 6. You notice the repetition of that key word in verse 5, hypocrite. And by the end of this chapter, Jesus is finally going to tell us what happens to such hypocrites eternally. For now, though, the context of the Sermon on the Mount leads us to still expect he's not speaking universally per se, but he's, he's showing us that the true way in contrast to the ways of the scribes and the Pharisees, which already leads us to believe that He's not just dealing with judgment in this passage, but hypocritical judgment. Hypocritical judgment. That is the case, and we can prove that, display that. Now, first, notice how this judgment in chapter 7, it's between fellow Christians. This passage really says nothing about societal judgment or law courts. Verses 3 and 4 make that clear. This is dealing with sin between brothers 
That term brother is used consistently for those within the faith. This is talking about in-house judgment, so to speak. Secondly, Jesus can't be forbidding all types of judgment. There are different types of judgment, and Jesus is certainly not prohibiting his disciples from exercising what you might call the judgment of discernment. I mean, that, that should be obvious. Jesus himself exercises that judgment, and he tells us, commands us to do the same thing. You want to talk about some people ignoring the context. How about the very next verse in the passage? Verse 6. What does Jesus tell us to do in verse 6? Right after he says, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And we're going to explore that passage in detail next week. But everyone agrees it's not talking about dogs and pigs. He's talking about people. Some people, in some way, they're more like these unclean animals. And we are told not to give what is holy to them. What exactly that means, we'll find out next time. But the point is, to obey that command, a type of critical judgment is required. You're going to have to discern who are these dogs and pigs. You must also judge who are the wolves. Verse 15, the same context here. Beware the false prophets. Verse 15, beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. You see, we're commanded to exercise the judgment of discernment. We are required to identify true and false teachers so as to be on guard. That might sound judgy to you, but this comes directly from the Lord. We know our society and and even liberal churches don't like this. As you know, they claim the new chief virtue is tolerance. You You can't criticize anyone. You can't offend anyone. Even microaggressions are now, I guess we could call them macro transgressions. You have to be accepting of all people, all beliefs, all practices. Of course, we know the irony is that the same people are completely intolerant of those they deem intolerant, viciously so. And I think how quickly even pacifists would resort to violence to fight these intolerant ones who don't accept everything they do and believe. But look, this is, this is not the way of the Lord. He was very loving, but very intolerant of sin and error. He called it out all the time. I guess Jesus liked animals because he's always comparing people and the wicked to animals. Herod Antipas was that fox. The wicked are dogs and pigs. The scribes and Pharisees, he called them a brood of vipers. That all came from the mouth of the Lord. You don't get to pick and choose which words of Jesus you accept and which you reject. I mean, just wait till we get to Matthew 23 and the series of eight woes he pronounces on the scribes and the Pharisees. There he calls them hypocrites, blind guides, blind men, fools, whitewashed tombs, and serpents. I mean, if if you have a problem with all this, you're going to have a problem with Jesus. Both from his example and his teaching, we are required to be always discerning. Exercising a type of judgment that we might identify truth from error, sin, from righteousness. And when sin or error are found in the church, what are we supposed to do about that? Nothing. We don't want to be judgmental. What does Jesus tell us to do in the same book later in Matthew 18, verse 15? If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. To call out sin, that sounds, sounds very judgy, very intolerant. But this is what the Lord commands us to do. Because he knows, though, when it's done in the right way, this is actually the most loving thing you can do. This is love. Sin is a cancer of the soul. Even for believers, though forgiven, the sin that clings to our flesh is destructive. It divides people and marriages and churches. That The most loving thing you can do is is graciously help someone deal with their besetting sin. To help others see their sin should be an immense blessing. And of course, the kicker here is if that's done in the right way. There is certainly a wrong way to do that. That is actually what this passage in Matthew 7 is all about. 
In Matthew 7, Jesus is not universally forbidding judgment. He's rather forbidding hypocritical judgment, which most often involves the judgment of condemnation. I appreciate the distinction R.C. Sproul makes between a judgment of discernment and a judgment of condemnation. We are never forbidden from being discerning. It's actually required that we judge between truth and error, right and wrong. The false teacher, we are not to receive, 2 John 10 says. And the false believer, we are not to associate with, 1 Corinthians 5.11 says. And so we're told to make these judgment calls. But we are never told to usurp God's role as judge and then condemn others. Now, granted, the way of the wicked is condemned by God in Scripture, but it's still his judgment, not ours. It's his role to play. As for us, it's not for us to have a critical spirit and go on some mission of condemnation where we're seeking to just tear down other people, other sinners who aren't good enough. It's not our place to throw the book at the the guilty and treat sinners harshly without mercy. We're talking here about the type of condemnation that, that almost seemingly revels in the destruction and judgment of of the ungodly. That type of judgmentalism, a judgment of condemnation, really has no place for the believer. It's, It's unbecoming of us. We are to be men and women of grace. As for our part, we recognize the only reason we have passed out of judgment and into life is because of God's grace. I mean, are are we better? Are we, what makes us any different? We were sinners, guilty, lost, just the same. The only difference is we have merely received God's mercy. So far, we've been on his receiving end. That, though, should compel us to show mercy to others. And so, yeah, we we must judge discerningly to identify the, the false and the wicked. But we're still called to show mercy, kindness, and compassion on the lost, Because we know the old adage that there but the grace of God go I. Jesus is not forbidding all judgment universally in this passage. Rather, he's warning us against the the hypocritical, self-righteous judgment of condemnation that characterized the scribes and the Pharisees. This was them to the T. And so another contrast here. That type of judgment should have no part in our lives And especially as we relate to one another in the church. I mean, especially when we're dealing with brothers and sisters. There's there's no place for that. Now, there really is a lot more to say on this topic of judgmentalism. In fact, uh, some some years ago, we preached and devoted an entire message to it. And so if this piques your interest and you want to know uh, even more what the Bible says about the topic of judgment, you can go back. There's a James 4, 11 and 12 sermon titled Judgmentalism. You can get on our website. And learn even, for, uh, learn even more, James 4, 11, and 12. For now, though, I think we've touched on this context here. We need to get into Matthew 7. And thankfully, the text itself is rather straightforward once the, the scope is settled. What we have here are three cautions to consider when judging brothers. Three cautions to consider when judging brothers. And Jesus is not forbidding all types of judgment. There is a sense we're commanded to rebuke, restore a sinning brother. But we certainly are warned against this hypocritical condemning judgment. So let's see if we can understand and heed these cautions. First, remember, you will be judged. The first caution tells us to remember, you will be judged. Verse 1, let's go through these verses. Or Jesus says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. So let's begin with this, this verse that Tolstoy believed could mean nothing else than the prohibition of all judgment. Even the court system has to go. Start with this command, do not judge. What, what does that mean? To judge, krino is the word in Greek. It means to separate, to choose, to distinguish, to select. There are two sides, two senses to this. The first is to judge in the sense of separating. This is where you are making a judgment call to distinguish right, wrong, truth, error, good and bad. This is a judgment we are told to make all over the place. John 7, 24, Jesus says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with a righteous judgment. 
That's a verse we're commanded to judge, but righteously. Now, there is another sense of this word, though, where after you have separated or distinguished, then you judge so as to sentence or condemn. This is the judgment of condemnation. It can even go a step further to include punishment, where you now uh, seek uh, to avenge the wrongdoing of, of the guilty. So now we're talking you're becoming judge, jury, and executioner. This is, though, the type of judgment Jesus is forbidding in this passage. We're talking about fellow believers here, so all the more so, the point stands, who made us their master? Who made us their Lord? No, we're all servants of one master, Christ. We all report to him. He'll do all the judging amongst his people and the lost. He'll do all the judging. We will all appear as believers before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, thankfully, we don't fear any condemnation from the Lord. He died to save us, to put away all our sins. There's no fear in this judgment, but he still will judge his people for rewards. The point, though, is every aspect of the role of judge belongs to him. Jesus teaches in John that the Father has handed all judgment to the Son. He is the judge. And we don't make such determinations. So when you look left, you look right, you see a fellow brother and sister in the Lord. Someone of equal value in God's standing. Someone for whom Christ died. So who put us in authority over them so as to sentence them? Now look, we understand the balance of scripture. As we've said, yeah, we, we have to call out sin. Matthew eighteen fifteen again, if you see your brother sin, go and show him his fault in private. To the one who refuses to repent, that same passage, the Lord gives the church a type of authority to enact consequences and remove that person from the church. We get that. But individually, that's not our role. That's not our place. Yes, the Lord has delegated some of his authority to church elders, but that's individually not our role or place. Part of that stems from the fact that that we're not God. We don't have the omniscience required to be perfectly just judges. Now, you know, sometimes a person's actions can reach a point where they're, they're pretty clearly revealing what's in their heart. But even still, we, we can't read a person's heart, their motives. We don't know all the circumstances. We are to refrain from personal condemnation. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Likewise, talking about, again, judgment within the church, within our walls, just as Romans 12 tells us, to uh, leave vengeance to the Lord, he will repay. Romans 14 tells us, leave judgment to the Lord. He will judge between his people. Romans 14, verse 4, verse 10, we're asked, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Then verse 10, but, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. If you prove unmerciful toward your brother or sister, you regard them with contempt. You judge them with a harsh, critical, condemning spirit. Well, you you can pretty much expect a, a similarly harsh treatment from the Lord. Can't you? I mean, isn't that Paul's warning at the end? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So, so take heed, take caution. And this is what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 7. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. This is clearly speaking of God's judgment and being reminded that, that we too will give an account at the judgment seat of Christ. We are cautioned in how we treat others, especially within the church. Now, I should say, I think there is an even deeper caution to Christ's words here that, that speak of a, a much deeper judgment than the judgment seat of Christ. You see, what do we do when you have a professing believer, someone who claims to be a Christian, but they persist ongoingly, unrepentantly of this harsh, hypocritical, condemning, self-righteous judgment of others? Well, if you're going to act less like a disciple, more like a Pharisee, 
you just might find the same judgment on the last day as they will. And don't forget, down in verse 21 of Matthew 7, we find out what happens to the religious hypocrites. Those who, they they call Jesus Lord, but they practice lawlessness. And we find they are turned away from the kingdom in judgment. And so truly, truly, we, we must beware hypocritical judgment. We are not the judge. We are all the judged. If you're in Christ, more so, you are the forgiven. We've passed out of judgment into life. And being so impacted by God's grace then, we're compelled just to minister that grace to others. To relate to others by not law, but grace. If we don't do that, what does that say about our faith? To the one who tramples underfoot God's grace, well, be warned. Do not judge or you will be judged. Now, a second caution when judging brothers. Secondly, remember, you will be judged as you judge others. From verse 2, you will be judged as you judge others. Pretty much what verse 2 says. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Now, first, I want you to notice how verse 2 begins with four or therefore, obviously connecting it to verse 1. This is the explanation of his intent in verse 1 of the command. And look, this only uh, confirms that Jesus is not prohibiting all types of judgment. Verse 2 clarifies the intent of verse 1. So when he says, do not judge, what does he mean? He has in mind the way in which we judge the manner of our judgment, right? Look at verse one, verse two, verse one, do not judge for verse two in the way you judge, you will be judged. What's in mind here. It is the manner of our judgment, or as he says in verse two, our standard of measure. That's what he's calling out. He's not taking issue with us judging a brother in the sense of identifying sin. He's taking issue with how you issue such judgments and your standard of measure. Don't fall into hypocrisy. That's, that's the point. This phrase at the beginning of verse 2, the way you judge, that's derived from a single Greek word, krima. It's very similar to the word for judgment. But it speaks of the reason for judgment. And it's most often used of condemnation. It's the word Jesus uses all over the place where he says the scribes and Pharisees will receive a greater, not just judgment, condemnation. They will receive a greater condemnation. To, to condemn though, to issue such condemnation, that, that's God's prerogative. That's his righteousness and justice. That's his role, not ours. With this in mind, what's behind this second caution? We're being reminded that how we judge others will come back around. This is the principle of reciprocity. However you treat others, you can expect the same treatment from God. This already anticipates the golden rule, which comes down in verse 12. Verse 12 of Matthew 7. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. This is the law and the prophets. Now, as a corollary, how you treat others, you can expect such treatment from God. This is a principle Jesus uses all the time. He already has in the Sermon on the Mount in reference to forgiveness. If you don't forgive others, don't expect God's forgiveness. In reference to giving, if you're not generous with others, don't expect God's generosity. And so on. Here he uses it in reference to hypocritical judgment and condemnation. If that is your standard of measure, well, you can expect that from God. So beware. Now, a word of clarification is needed here, lest you think that from this, that that our salvation or our treatment by God is conditioned on our works or performance. It's not. We know we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, apart from our works, our performance. But as we'll learn later in Matthew 7, you will know them by their fruits. You'll know them by their fruits. Just as fruits tell you the nature of a tree, So a person's deeds tell you their nature. We were not saved by being kind 
or merciful or gracious or forgiving, that those deeds don't contribute to our salvation, but they should speak of the state of our salvation. The believer who displays such fruits amply, they give evidence that they, they've been transformed. They've been made new. They, they have the spirit within them. But those who are unmerciful, unforgiving, harsh, condemning, who treat others with contempt and who hypocritically judge like the scribes and Pharisees, are they not piling up evidence by their fruit? Have they been born again? Do they have the spirit? Is there a new life within them? They might still be under God's wrath, in which case they can expect, expect such harsh, exacting judgment from him. Once again, verses 21 through 23, that the false hypocritical believer is turned away, or so-called believer, is turned away from the kingdom. Why? He says, because they practiced lawlessness. This is a sober warning for us who are saved to just pause and remember to always treat others with the same grace we have received. I mean, we still sin, sometimes even in great ways. As often as we sin, though, we are to be reminded of the price paid for our sins already. God, in his great mercy, he already has sent his son Christ to die on that cross, to pay the full penalty of our sins. I mean, he died to erase all of our sin debt, and we receive that gift. I mean, do you appreciate the gift of total forgiveness? We receive it at no cost. What do we have to do to receive this? Simply go to Jesus and believe. This is a free grace gift. You should be thanking God every day for his grace that he showed to you. And that grace should then keep us perpetually humble before God, just just face planted down before him in humility and also before others. Even when someone sins against us or offends us, we might be prone to harshly judge them in our flesh, but we instead need to be moved just to show grace and mercy because that, that's me. I, I'm no different before God. He showed me grace. How can I not? How can I withhold grace and mercy from, from a fellow sinner? This is the way of Christ. When it comes to sin, our tendency is to deal with our own sin very generously, very charitably. We, we believe the best. We put ourselves in the best possible light. We even redefine our sin as just a little mistake, a little misstep. We downplay it. We, we deal with it as leniently as possible. When we judge ourselves, we are very kind judges, very gracious. But we would quickly and harshly judge our spouse or someone else for the exact same sin. We would pass judgment on them. We would condemn them in our hearts. What a, what a sinner. How ungodly. I can't believe you would do that. But no, this should be reversed. We should show others the greatest grace and generosity in our judgments and instead judge ourselves with the harshest judgment first. And this leads to the third caution. Third, remember to judge yourself first. Remember to judge yourself first. And this comes out of verses three and four. Let's read those again. He says, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. Now here Jesus issues a pair, I guess you might call them proverbial questions. And they're designed to expose the hypocrisy of judging others when you have not judged yourself and you have your own guilt. He brings up the situation of Getting something in your eye. A universal experience. We all know what that feels like. Nothing can so quickly stop us in our tracks. It's just getting something in your eye. A piece of sand, an eyelash. And when that happens, you stop. You can't do anything else. What do you do? You run to the bathroom. You run to the mirror to get that thing out. But what if you lived in a time before mirrors? Well, then you would likely have to rely on someone else to assist you. They're going to have to very delicately help you get that speck out of your eye. So Jesus envisions a situation where a brother, fellow Christian, has a speck in their eye. Once again, this term for brother, 
It's, Jesus has already used this five times in the Sermon on the Mount. Every time, very clear. He's not talking about a sibling, but a spiritual sibling, brother or sister in the faith. Okay, so this person has something in their eye. The word for speck just means anything dry or light. A little piece of sawdust, sand, chaff, whatever. It only takes a single grain of sand to, to torment our eyes. So if you were to see a brother with a speck in his eye, that the most loving thing you could do would be go over and help him get it out. You can't just leave there suffering and scratching and pain. I mean, he has no mirror. You got to go help him get it out. But there's a catch here. How can you do this? How can you offer assistance when you have something in your own eyes? You, you can't even see clearly to help him take the speck out. You're not, you're not qualified. You're not able to help because your own vision is impaired. And you, you should probably deal with that first. But as you know, this is where things get ridiculous because, I mean, what do you have obscuring your vision? Do you have your own speck? No, Jesus says you, you have a log in your eye. Now, a log is a fine translation of this word, but you can go much bigger. This word was used to describe the mast of a ship or a battering ram. But I think Jesus, having a carpentry background, he probably has in mind a roof beam, like the main beam that runs down the whole roof on which all the rafters rest. No matter the case, this creates a cartoonish picture. And here you are, you're very concerned extremely concerned that this friend of yours, they've got a speck in their eye and it's up to you and you alone to take it out. Right? Verse four, this person has not even come to you for help in this situation. You are seeking them out. Verse four, you, you've sought him out. You say to him, let me take the speck out of your eye. You're proactive, you're persistent, but all the while you have a, a telephone pole sticking out of your own eye. <laughs> and verse three, it says, you don't even notice it. You don't even notice the telephone pole coming out of your eye. I think, I think you've got your own problem to deal with first. The point is, it's simple, it's obvious, but uh, that the word picture Jesus creates uh, gives us a lasting, memorable lesson. A simple one. Just remember to judge yourself first. Remember to judge yourself first. He's not giving us advice on how to be an ophthalmologist. This point has nothing to do with eyes or splinters or logs. In a context of judgment, is no doubt referring to the sins and faults of others. And so it's a picture then of what? Hypocritical judgment. The very thing he's been stressing this whole passage, hypocritical judgment. I mean, talk about a hypocrite. You've got a person who's running up to people, criticizing them, judging them harshly for all types of sins, all types of minor infractions. And don't get me wrong, all sin is serious in God's eyes. But relatively speaking, this person is railing against people for relatively minor sins and faults. Meanwhile, they're guilty of, of all the same things and, and worse, much worse. The word for that is hypocrite. That is the right charge. And sadly, the church is no stranger to them. Jim Baker, Jimmy Swagger, Paul Crouch, Ted Haggard, Carl Lentz, the list goes on and on and on of Popular pastors, televangelists, preachers, they, they preach against sin and immorality, licentiousness, often with vigor. But then it's discovered they're secretly engaging in all that and much more. Adultery, sexual morality, homosexuality, drugs, drunkenness. Jesus would say they're whitewashed tombs. But don't think this passage only applies to those who have some massive skeletons in their closet. This is a caution meant for all of us. And the message is just examine yourself first. Judge yourself first. Look to yourself first. Don't play the hypocrite. Say so you have a, a Christian friend and you've witnessed him getting pretty seriously angry several times. And you feel like you need to say something. But wait, you know, at home, you, you have a serious ongoing problem with anger yourself. Maybe you should judge yourself first. Or maybe you see a fellow believer at church, and she's always gossiping. There's a lady who's always airing the dirty laundry of others. It's, it's never edifying. You want to say something. But wait, you find, you find yourself gossiping just as much about her being a gossiper. You should probably judge yourself first. Or maybe there's someone in your small group who you believe has made an idol out of entertainment. 
from sports to TV. They're just obsessed with entertainment to the detraction. Their spiritual life is down to zero. You know it's bad for them. You want to say something, but, but wait. You stop and realize that I've been doing the same thing with social media. You should probably judge yourself first. This passage only affirms what we already know by experience, namely that the sins of others, they're readily apparent to us. I mean, it's obvious. But our own sins, not so much. If I were to ask you right now, for those who are married, to, to write down a list of all the faults and failures of your spouse, you would start writing. And you'd probably give me a long list. But if I were to ask you to write down the faults and failures of yourself, I'm equally sure it would be a much shorter list, and you'd probably have to stop and think about it. And we're easily blind to our own sins. We all have blind spots. This is the deceitfulness of sin. At the very least, though, this fact should just stop us in our tracks when we are tempted to rush to judgment. So look, don't play the hypocrite. Don't play doctor when you're sicker than the patient. Don't attempt eye surgery when you're blind. We've learned we too will be judged. We will be judged as we judge others. So we had better judge ourselves first. But as you know, this is, this is not the end of the matter. Jesus doesn't leave it here. He, this, this fact, once again, further affirms he's not forbidding us from all types of judgment. Because in the next verse, the last verse, verse 5, he's, he's going to essentially tell us to judge. He's going to tell us to play doctor. Get this carefully. The, the moral of this story is not to just mind your own business. That's not the point of this passage. Okay, just don't, don't worry about other people's sins. Just, just worry about yourself. Just be loving and acceptant and tolerant. That speck, that sin in your brother, to each their own. Don't worry about it. Mind your own business. That's not the message. Your brother really does have a splinter in his eye. He really needs help taking it out. The message is not to ignore the sins or faults of others. The message is to, first and foremost, deal with yourself. Beware hypocritical judgment. Judge yourself first and repent. You repent first. Then, after you've been made right with the Lord, then then you come back able to help your brother see clearly. Isn't that verse 5? Isn't that what Jesus says? He says in verse 5, you hypocrite, concluding the thought before. But then his prescription, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The moral of the story is that hypocrisy is being forbidden here. Hypocritical judgment is being forbidden here. But the genuine care for others is not. And that genuine care sometimes involves pointing out sin. It involves the judgment of discernment. If a fellow brother or sister is blind to some sin in their lives, well, we see it, which happens often. We're all, we all have our own blind spots. Again, that the most loving thing, really, when you think about it, you can do is help them see their sin and be rid of it. I'll read again. Jesus explicitly spells this out in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. As believers, it's our great desire to see one another enter the joy of being made more like Christ. But we know the deceitfulness of sin, how it threatens to derail us. So when we witness a fellow believer in sin, they're on that path to show them their sin, to correct them, that that is love. We are commanded to do that. But we've learned from the Lord this morning what we had better do first, which is look in the mirror and judge ourselves rightly first, lest we condemn ourselves, lest we play the hypocrite. The manner in which we point out the speck in our brother's eye is like half the battle here. And, and the only way we're going to get that right is if we judge ourselves first. It is that self-examination that produces humility. And that humility yields gentleness and graciousness when dealing with others. A key verse we read this morning, Galatians 6.1. He says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, 
He says, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And another warning against hypocritical judgment. We're dealing with the brethren. Our goal is never to harshly condemn, but gently restore. That gentleness, where does it come from? It only comes by being broken over your own sin and the many logs in your eye that you've taken out over the years. You see your sin. You don't despair because you also see your Savior. Again, God in his grace, he already has sent his son Christ to die on a piece of wood for you, to rise from the dead, to put away all of your sin, all of your guilt, all of your transgression forever. So have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? My God is compassionate with sinners. He's gracious. He's kind. He's forgiving. If you have tasted and seen that, then as often as you recall your own salvation, your own forgiveness, it should move you to a graciousness and just a gentleness with others. The application to what Jesus teaches here is, is limitless. <clears throat> but just as a rule of, <clears throat> excuse me, as a rule of thumb, anytime you uh, feel prompted to judge others, whether it's justified or not, judge yourself first. Look to yourself first. I think that's the big takeaway. Take anytime you feel prompted to judge others, whether justified or not, Look to yourself first. So the next time you hear a convicting sermon, don't go run to your Christian friend and say, hey, I heard this message. I wish you were there. You really need to hear this message. Let me tell you all the ways you need to change. Now you just, just focus on yourself first. Let the word pierce your own heart. The next time your spouse makes you late for something and you're tempted to get angry or make a snide remark or condemn and say, you always make us late. Watch out. Be careful and humble yourself because you know one of these days, one of these days, it will be you who makes you both late. And on that day, you're going to get it. (laughs) You're going to be called out as a hypocrite and it will be deserved. And far better to be gracious, to be patient, to help. Whatever strong feelings you have about the sins of others, make sure they're matched with equally strong feelings about your own sin. I think I need to say that again. Whatever strong feelings you have about the sins of others, just make sure they're matched by equally strong, if not stronger feelings about your own sin. And let those come first. That will temper how you deal with others. And all, we need to let this passage redefine our knee-jerk response to conflict. What is our, our knee-jerk response to any conflict? Someone has sinned against us or offended us or we've seen something, whatever it is. Our knee-jerk response is to point the finger and assign blame, like really quickly. Like, this is your fault. Look what you did. You're in the wrong. And when you have, when you have two people doing that, when you have both parties angrily pointing the finger at one another, you're never going to get to peace and reconciliation. There's just too much pride. But instead, we need to learn from Jesus a new knee-jerk response to conflict. And it's just to stop and point the finger at yourself. Yeah, it very well may be the other person started it. They have sinned against you. They have offended you. Maybe you've truly done nothing. That doesn't matter. That is all irrelevant. You still first, and again, first, not last, but first, humble yourself and ask, have I sinned here? Have I, am I in the wrong? Have I done any wrong? How have I contributed to this conflict? How have I conducted myself poorly? How have I offended this person? How have I tempted this person? What have I done? Examine yourself first. This is extremely hard to do. We don't want to eat that humble pie. We don't want to give the other person the, other up, uh, the upper hand. And this is certainly not how you win fights in the world. You can't play like this. You'll just get trampled. But, you know, our, our goal is not to win a fight. Our goal is to glorify God in our response to conflict. And this humility is the way of the Lord. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble James 4, 6. So in conflict, in anything, humble yourself first. Judge yourself first. Repent of your sins first. Ask for forgiveness first. And then you'll learn how to help your fellow brother or sister deal with their sin. But you've probably learned that conflict runs off of pride. It is fueled by pride. But 
when one side just stops, they lay down their arms, they humble themselves, I find that it often begets humility from the other person, and at least peace and reconciliation can begin. At the end of the day, though, the golden rule reigns. How would you want others to deal with you? Let's say you really are in sin. You have some fault. You, you really do have a speck in your eye. How would you want a fellow believer to treat you? Would you want them to come up to you, harshly tear you down, criticize you, and just condemn you? Or graciously come alongside you, pray for you, and help you grow, help you repent and grow? You'd want to be treated graciously. Undeservedly, we're, we're all already recipients of God's amazing grace. That then is how we should treat others. We sing of God's amazing grace all the time. I mean, so profound is this unearned favor we've received from the Lord in the sacrifice of his son for us. In a sense, that's what other people should say of us. Not to our glory, but from our witness, they should see a reflection of God's amazing grace. Like that person just seems grace. The scribes and the Pharisees, they had no concept of grace. They had no knowledge of grace. They were all law, no grace. That led them to a ruthlessness in dealing with sinners. The only problem with that is they were actually sinners too. And that made them hypocrites. That lined them up for God's judgment. But for us who have tasted his amazing grace, we need to always strive to extend that same grace to others and all that we do. We do sing of God's amazing grace. We, we must, we should, but now let us resolve to always put on display God's amazing grace and how we treat one another. Let's make that our prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we, we say that and mean it. You are a gracious God. We praise you for all your attributes. You're just, you're wise, you're, you're right in all you do. And we are not we are those who have gone astray as, as sinners, rebels against your holiness, your righteousness, and, and you sit in judgment. You are also a perfectly just judge. We praise you in that as well, but we thank you are also kind and gracious, compassionate, and merciful. We thank you for the mercy that led you to send your son to die on that cross for sinners such as us, though we were dead in our trespasses and sins. In your mercy, because of the great love with which you loved us, you sent son to, uh, your son to raise us from the dead, to give us new and everlasting life. We have tasted, seen a truly amazing grace. We, we magnify you for that. We can never forget that. When we do, we become harsh. Our flesh takes over and, and leads us to the old way of being exacting, self-righteous, cruel. Now humble us. Keep us constantly humble under your, your mercy, under your, your love, which we know we just did not deserve. And that, let that humility then just penetrate us and, and lead uh, to change in how we deal with others, how we treat others, that, that, that your grace would come off our lips, how we deal with the, the fellow sinner. Uh, let it be always uh, t- marked by grace or knowing that that's what we would want as well. We need this. We need the spirit to fill us, to enable us to do this. Convict us though to beware a hypocritical judgment. Lead us to always judge ourselves first, And I'll always look to Christ, our Savior, who covers our sin. May we minister the cross to people and just take one another to the cross where all sins are forgiven and where the believer finds renewed peace. We give this up to you in prayer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.